This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. So it's that week between Christmas and New Year's, and it's a weird time, right? Like a holiday limbo, a kind of annual no man's land, just the week where you just don't know what to do with yourself because everything seems to slow down. Might we suggest picking a movie and leaving everything else for 2023? And there's so much to choose from this year. Small, small girl. I am going to give you two options. You can come to Wakanda, conscious or unconscious. You need to be conscious of the way that you look. So don't you mess around with me. We're here to negotiate your peaceful surrender. Hey, sunshine. (laughs) Mm. You must be loyal. What gave it away? The white pants, the trash dash. It just, it leans loyal. Sometimes people say that my head is too big for my body, and then I say, compared to what? As we close out 2022, we're joined by some movie buffs to talk about the best, the worst, and the surprising movies we watched all year. In the studio, we've got Mitchie Trota, Features Editor at Prism Magazine. Hey, Mitchie. Hi, good morning. And Michael Phillips is the film critic at the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back, Michael. And rounding out our panel is Charles Coleman, the film program director at Facets. Hey, Charles. Glad to be here. So, Charles, we'll start with you. How would you describe this year in movies, speaking broadly? Uh, I actually think it's a pretty remarkable year because one of the things about cinema these days, I mean, I know there's a lot of opportunities for people to see films on different platforms, like in a real cinema with actual people in the theater and streaming opportunities. But I think that's been an interesting hybrid between uh, people seeing things online and people seeing the theater. And that has actually opened the envelope for considerable content to be made. And a lot of directors have got their chance to explore some of their personal ideas and and also look at what's going on in the world. So actually, there's more films than ever of a particularly high quality that people can see. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, this was a year where it seems like production companies really went all in on bringing theater-exclusive movies back. Uh, You know, we saw a lot more films that you had to go to the theaters to see, and maybe in six months or so it'd be streaming. Um, Is that what it seemed like to you, Michael? Yeah, in part, I think... I think the the six months is a little uh, a little uh, on the on the rare uh, end, and that I, I, what I'm still hearing from a lot of folks, I guess you'd call them you know civilians, but also really serious movie going civilians. Uh, you know, half of my family, for example, if if you have a thirty day <laughs> gap between it opens in theaters and it's streaming, uh, more and more what I'm hearing people is say, "Man, thirty days, I'll just wait." And I think that's you look at something like the Netflix. Um, Knives Out Mystery Glass yeah. Onion, which, you know, they, they kind of dumped in theaters for one week, uh, mainly to appease the director, writer-director Ryan Johnson, because that's, you know, directors still want to see their things on a big screen. Uh, it did way better business than they ever expected, and Netflix was kind of like, well, well, fluke, uh, we'll yeah, take it out, <laughs> and then we'll, you know, hopefully stream it to death on Netflix. I think that's a reminder to the studios that, you know, the movie, there is still... You know, even even coming out of mid-pandemic, wherever we are in this pandemic, there's still uh, there are millions to be made. Top Gun Maverick, whatever you thought of it, a billion and a half worldwide in theaters, 
And that's, you know, if you, if, if you had three movie theater operators here sitting behind the mic here in BEZ instead of us three, mm-hmm. they would be like, oh, who's, who's the only thing we're going to talk about is Tom Cruise and how he saved <laughs> our butts this year. And also, uh, Netflix also thought that they were betraying their subscribers because why is it in theaters is making all this money and I'm paying you this subscription fee? So why can't we see it as per our contractual arrangement? So they put it back online and then re-released it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting hybrid mode that uh, they're trying out. And we will get to that uh, a little bit later. But but first, um, of course, everyone has their, their genres that they like to go to. I, I think I was telling you earlier uh, before we got into the show that uh, I basically am, am beholden to uh, kid content. So whatever you can give me, I will I will take. So, Mitchie, <laughs> what, what kinds of movies do you gravitate toward? Well, um, I am a lifelong nerd. Uh, it's something that um, it's, it's still a way that I feel a connection with my parents, even though they're long gone. And honestly, I think the types of stories that speculative fiction that we've seen growing up on them actually prepared me far more than I ever could have expected for a life in journalism and understanding narrative and seeing how cultural movements are created and reflected. Um, So normally I'm a big comic book fan and a big genre, uh, just sci-fi fantasy genre fan. But this year I actually found myself not really all that interested in a lot of the MCU films that were coming yeah. out, um, with the exception being, well, I haven't seen Black Panther 2 yet, but it's on my list of films that I wasn't necessarily prioritizing for this because I, I, I will be very surprised if I don't like it. So right. I kind of wanted to push myself to try some different things this year, and I'm really glad that I did because there are films that have been exploring genre in a way that reminds us that you don't have to have these giant explosions or these world-ending high stakes or uh, villainous antagonists to be compelling stories and to really get us to think about our relationships with each other and with who we want to become when we face challenging um, experiences like this pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And what about you, Charles? Uh, what what types of genres do you gravitate towards? Um, I'm actually not... Uh particularly faithful to the wide range of films that are available. Uh, I tend to like all kinds of genres, uh, particularly, you know, film noir and even Westerns and science fiction. My affinities tend to uh, uh, lean toward any film where the director has a very particular point of view and it's a detail that I wasn't privy to knowing about before. Mm. And sometimes you can get to some surprising developments, such as a film like Decision to Leave, or After Sun, or Memoria. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, like in Memoria, is the fantastic use of sound, which is a keystone for the film. In a film like Decision to Leave, you have a, a mystery, thriller, Hitchcockian vertigo drama where the detective is more concerned about the woman who's accused of the crime than he is about solving yeah. the very thing he employs as a detective to resolve. Yeah, And it's, it was so uh, unusual for me, and the director was very focused on detailing human behavior. And we have a landscape like that. It just shows you the quixotic nature of what people can bring to the table. And a lot of filmmakers explore these territories with a lot of erudition and uh, attention to detail. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, well, before we get into our our uh, movies, our picks, uh, Michael, how about you? Uh, is there a genre that you gravitate towards? I'm, uh, like Charles, and I, I'm sure Mitchie too. The uh, I'm, I'm a little genre of sort of uh, you know non-specific, but uh, whatever genre, uh, something an action movie like the Netflix thing, The Gray Man belongs to. I don't like that genre. I don't like <laughs> I don't like nine hundred million dollar clumsy, you know. <laughs> Whatever that is, not for me. Uh, but and it, I think it does. That kind of action picture really gives action movies a bad name. But, you know, but I, I'm, I'm, I was happiest. I think. Uh, well, with when you have like a, a genre mashup or just something, it's a, it takes you two sentences to describe everything, everywhere, all at once, oh, which I yeah. liked. It didn't make my top ten, not quite, but but um, the fact that that uh, a modestly budgeted picture got a huge audience. In the movie in in movie theaters in this year, uh, without any existing IP to kind of get people in the door, anything other than like uh, it's pretty wild. Go check it out. Yeah, that's a nice thing. Let's let's start with that. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Let's take a quick listen to this clip. No, he doesn't have to stay. Who's he? Becky. Becky's a she. You know me. I always make that he, she. In Chinese, just one word. Ta. So easy. And the way you two are dressed, I'm sure I'm not the only one calling him he. I mean her, him, I. Anyways, my English is fine. And we have Google. So you don't have to come and be a translator. Huh? You stay here and she can cook it. That dialogue is just so relatable. It's pretty, um, <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. This was on your list. Uh, tell us what it is, or what, why you loved it. Why is it on your list? Uh, this was actually my absolute top favorite film for the year. I'm hoping to see it sweep all the awards, in particular the Hugos and uh, the Nebulas. But I loved it because it's such a risky premise. It's all of these things that. If you read it on paper, I would have been as an as a story editor. I would have been like, "Really? <laughs> I think you're trying just a little too hard." <laughs> um, but it was such a the story had so much cohesion, and it wasn't just gimmicky. Um, as much as the visuals and the premise were absolutely bananas, entertaining. I mean, hot dog fingers. By the time we got to there, I was. I had no idea that two inanimate rocks could make me cry <laughs> so much. Um, but th- I think that's the thing is that it's such a great example of how a premise that is creative and risky will not work unless you root it very, very strongly in deeply relatable human experiences. And for this, I mean, for all of the universe dimension hopping um, and the fantastic fight scenes, and good God, I am so happy. I keep forgetting the actor's name, but I have been a fan of the Indiana Jones movies, and I yeah, loved Short Hui Round. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, so few Asian faces that I would see in um, in those kind of movies when I was a kid. And... He's just, it's so wonderful to see him on film this way. But it was ultimately, I was not expecting this to be a story about a diaspora mother and daughter. And I know so many folks who have similar backgrounds to me who we were just in tears this whole movie because it was hitting us in places that uh, we don't normally get to see movies exploring that kind of internal life for us and to get it 
to have it done in a genre that is, I mean, that's my home is science fiction and fantasy. And to see it done in such a spectacularly joyous way. This is a movie that felt like it was made by people who love movies. And I think that's what really got me is that there was joy and just happiness taking risks and exploring this full facet of like, who can we be? Yeah. Uh, it was. It's such a fantastic film. I cannot stress enough that people should give it a chance. And I feel like over the pandemic, we've seen uh, a number of movies that that deal with um, intergenerational trauma. And I feel like this one really came at it from a complete, like just from mm-hmm. space. I mean, it came from a completely <laughs> different. And and uh, like you were saying, I mean, it it worked. Um, and just to be able to see um, a, a, an older immigrant woman. Mm-hmm as the star of um, a, just a bonkers <laughs> premise, but something very, um, at the core of it, something very relatable and traditional in some ways at the same time yeah. uh, was great to see. I mean, uh, you know, film star Michelle Yeoh had a, a great 2022, um, you know, on top of everything, everywhere, all at once. She also stars in the new Witcher prequel, Blood Origin. Um, do, do you feel she is finally having a moment? I mean, she's she's been a big star, but I feel like, do you think this is like really her getting her due? I think this is her getting her due with Western audiences, finally. Um, she has always been uh, a big star in Asia. And I mean, even from her earliest films, it was very, very clear how talented she was. But I love the fact that she is an older Asian woman. She is not trying to be anything that she's not allowing herself to be forced into any particular mold to be acceptable to Western audiences. She is fully herself and she is getting to take such a wide range of roles where we see that she is fully an actress in both, you know, in the way that she's able to use her body, her voice, everything. It's not just being a physical movie star she is a movie star mm-hmm. and that she is the entire package. And I love that we get to see someone who looks like her getting to do this kind of work and being acknowledged finally for the vast amount of talent that she has always had. I, yeah. I love I really love how how she just adjusts subtly uh, mm-hmm. Sort of the acting pitch and the style, depending on like which which of the nineteen sort of like <laughs> things they're going for in this film. It's amazing, and uh, it's if you take out you know the right forty minutes, if you look at the right forty minutes of a film like Every, Everything Everywhere, it looks like you know like kitchen sink realism. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's a story of a family trying to just trying to sort through some some really significant hairy emotional issues and. I think that's why it sticks with you, you know, and then and that's why you can go where the movie goes. Yeah, definitely. Well, moving to another critically acclaimed uh, film, uh, Michael and Charles, both of you had Tar on your list. Um, this is the Kate Blanchett movie about a world famous composer. Um, the American Film Institute also named it one of the best films of the year. Um, uh, Michael, what did you love about it? <laughs> well. Uh, uh, I, Todd Field is a filmmaker who made Little Children and In the Bedroom, and he, it's been a long, you know, many, many years since he's had a feature out. He had a lot of stalled projects. Um, yeah, I think it's about 16 years. 16 years. That's a long time between films. And 
I, I think it's more than a, a big showcase for Kate Blanchett, who I act, frankly find always skillful and, and, and often about 120%. Yeah, meaning twenty percent too much. And I, I, there's something about Tar. I think it's her best work ever. I think I think I think there were a lot of technical preoccupations. I'm guessing preparing for the role, just learning how to, you know, get the stick work right and look like a fearsomely, you know, charismatic, uh, formidable, uh, slippery, world class conductor. I mean, she had a lot of things to, you know, she had you know piano skills to work on. She had baton skills. She, I think, it's a three language performance. Um, I think that somehow all that technical preoccupation actually got a subtler performance out of her, which is a weird, a weird thing to happen. But there it was. I, I just find that a, a truly unpredictable narrative, and uh, and I love that there's. Uh, I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't seen it yet because it did not catch on in theaters. It made five million bucks, and the adults they hoped to, that would go out to see it, you know, didn't. They, yeah. were, they were still going the Top Gun Maverick. So, <laughs> and that's all right. That's all right. You know, uh, but uh, but in the old days, I think they would have made the switch. You know, but I think pre-pandemic. Uh, but but there's there's a there's an entirely kind of other there's a spectral a supernatural element to Tar that I frankly didn't tease out uh, the way some critical colleagues have and I and it actually makes me want to see it a third time but there's wow. enough there for me to really want it to have seen it a second time so I had a very rich film yeah well Charles this was also on your list uh did you see it more than once <laughs> I have seen it twice and uh as Michael was saying it's 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 it just it just has so many unanswered questions that should not frustrate the viewer because the normally when you have a performance like Kate Blanchett's uh People generally tend to look at acting in broad strokes, where it has to be a role that, you know, great volume attracts your attention without any nuance or craftsmanship. And, or they kind of applaud the actor for being on screen most of the time, which is basically an endurance test. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Tar, first of all, she actually is on screen most of the time, but her performance, it's, it's such a, uh, a range and and her the psychology of her character doesn't fall victim to uh, thumbnail sketches where you find easy solutions to what she's dealing with. As, as a considerable amount of undiagnosed trauma, she seems to be a real character. And 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 regarding the democracy of how people interpret gender, she's she's not particularly pleasant. So this whole nobility about women having uh, certain uh, noble attributes when you have something that fuels ambition. Power uh, kind of corrupts uh, people, no matter what gender you are. And she's obviously trying to get over something, but she uses her her abilities to take advantage of interns and people under her charge. She's obviously really talented, but it's it's by brute force. And in any way she conducts, like her body language dictates how she determines her environment, and and but she holds on to something that. We don't know quite what it is. And as Michael was saying, there's a lot of elements that are uh, supernatural or something you can't quite get a handle on. Mm-hmm. But but the human experience doesn't supply you with things that are, that are uh, necessarily something for the viewer to solve. Yeah. But the film completely provokes your interest. It sustains it. She's fascinating. I mean, I, I loved her in the movie Carol by Ty Haynes. Yeah. But but uh, Todd Field, I mean, she actually it, it's such a generous role, and 
and you get this whole thing involved in classical music. Right. It just shows no matter what thing you can control with with your skill. Doesn't matter what the field is. It yeah. could be classical music. It could be working at some big tech company. The same forces that uh, where you have to fight your way to the top. It it basically means you have a debris field and a casualty list in your wake. <laughs> and uh, and she and she was and she was splendid, fantastic. Mm-hmm. This is Reset. I'm Susie Onan for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking with Mitchie Trota, Features Editor at Prism Magazine, Michael Phillips, Film Critic at the Chicago Tribune, and Charles Coleman, Film Program Director at Facets, about the best movies of the year. And we want to hear from you. What is your favorite movie of 2022, and what did you love about it? You can call us now at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, that number is 866-915-WBEZ. Uh, Charles, another film on your list, After Sun. Um, I again, this was on my. I, I need to watch this one. I watched the trailer and, and got a little teary eyed. Uh, let's take a listen to part of it. <laughs> you know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whenever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Dad, oh my god, what even is that? These are my moves. No, <laughs> that's so embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. You okay through there? I don't know, I guess. I just feel a bit down or something. What do you mean? Don't you ever feel, like, tired and down and feels like your bones don't work, like you're sinking? And that's from the trailer for After Sun. Uh, Charles, uh, what is this film about and, and why did you like it? Uh, it's about this uh, young man and his uh, daughter. He's... He's either divorced or uh, separated from his wife, who we never see. The daughter's about 11. He's actually young enough to be seen as her brother. Uh, so obviously he's trying to bear a heavy responsibility. And they have this magic period by which they're on this uh, trip while he can see her uh, at these resorts. And, and at first, their relationship doesn't seem to be necessarily father and daughter. They seem to be more like friends. And, uh, and over the course of the film, you see their relationship undergoing these protean shifts because um, he's not quite fully an adult to accept the responsibility that's been brought upon him. Uh, she is surprisingly mature for her age, but she also wants to be a kid. Yeah. And, and the film, uh, I, was, I was actually very surprised when it was a debut film. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the director uses with great skill and and uh, and considerable uh, foreknowledge of using video and the, and images because you don't quite know where you are in terms of orienting yourself within the narratives. Like some things are in the past, some things are recorded with his camera. Uh, the relationship undergoes these uh, mm-hmm. shifting uh, changes between how they relate to each other. And like Kate Blanchard and Tar, he has uh, a trauma that we don't quite know. And there's something physically wrong with him, like with, the, like with his arm. And maybe it's psychosomatic, but the director doesn't leave you abandoned. Right. Yeah. But you just realize that people are complicated Mm -hmm. and and it's and i just thought and the title says a lot too after sun it it just makes you think like is that some kind of a cognate word from lewis carroll (laughs) i mean it's it's just i mean it was just an amazing piece of 
of, uh, of how people from, from relate to each other, not only from a psychological standpoint, but every person is a universe. Yeah. And one mm-hmm. of the hardest things to know is what goes on inside of an actual person. Yeah. And that that's After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. Uh, swinging in the opposite direction of sweet movies, uh, the film Umma, at uh, at least the trailer, uh, both fascinated and, and terrified me. Let's let's take a quick listen. Who is this woman? That's my Umma. That was all she had. I remember so much screaming. I didn't want you to know her. Why? Some Koreans believe that life's hardships are caused by the tormented spirits of their ancestors. Amanda, you okay? I think there's something wrong. Is this what you want? A final resting place? And that is the trailer for Amma. Um, Mitchie, this movie, of course, with the talented Sandra Oh, made your list. Uh, briefly tell us what it's about and why you liked it. So it is uh, at its base. It is a horror story that we've seen a billion times before. Uh, there is a, a woman who is trying to escape her trauma and has cut herself off from her mother. Um, and her mother's ghost is not going to have it. Um, and of course, uh, Sandra O's oh's character is a mother herself now living on a plot of land with no electricity, raising uh, bees and selling honey with her teenage daughter, who is on the cusp of adulthood. And horror is not has not traditionally been my genre. Um, and I'm really starting to wonder if that is, Because the horror films that I was exposed to as a kid, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. you know, Hellraiser, um, they're scary in ways that aren't necessarily rooted in an experience that I find um, terrifying, uh, really, because it's so set far out from something that feels real. Uma felt real to me in a way that the horror is, it's not just about a unquiet spirit it's rooted in this desire that um, traditions and the pressure to honor your elders regardless of the trauma that they've inflicted on you and the fear that you will inflict that trauma on others that um, you can't run from it you have to face it and I think coming on coming from that perspective through the lens of having this be a diaspora, an Asian diaspora, um, in particular Korean diaspora story, I think made it refreshing. The story itself is a little, it's not as fleshed out as I would have liked it to Mm -hmm. be. But aside from Sandra Oh, just really, really pulling you in um, with her performance, the I loved how focused it was on the mother-daughter relationship yeah. again. It's sort of a twisted version of uh, what we see in everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it suggests that there is a way through this trauma to some sort of catharsis, but it is not going to be easy, and it means that you can't really run away from who you are, but you don't have to unthinkingly um, 
repeat that trauma. And I actually do love the fact that they make it very clear that keeping secrets mm-hmm. is what perpetuates mm-hmm. that trauma. Yeah. Um, I really, I think that there was there is a lot going for this and that it is a different way of approaching a what is a very familiar type of ghost yeah. story. And for our listeners, if horror is not your thing, but you uh, want to watch another Sandra O oh movie dealing with uh, her as a mom and intergenerational <laughs> trauma, I will suggest uh, Turning Red. It's family friendly <laughs> and animated. Um, <laughs> it was very sweet. I was not expecting that Turning Red to make me cry like buckets. Actually, it made my top 10. I mean, it was just. Yeah, you know, that's the best thing Pixar's done in years. I agree, and uh, I can't help but love the soundtrack too. I, I did not expect to <laughs> really like the <laughs> you know early two thousands boy band music, but uh, yeah, they they really hit that one out of the park. Um, another movie, Michael, that was on your list was uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Um, that that of course started as a series of short videos from Jenny Slate and Dean Camp on YouTube in twenty ten. Um, tell us about the film and, and why you liked it. Oh my God! I mean, what a cute little mosque. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just I love. I saw these shorts. I think they started in twenty ten on YouTube, and and they developed into a couple of picture books, and now we have a feature. And it's a you know, it's it's just sort of the the observations and adventures of um, you know, roughly inch tall. Uh, uh, Mollusk, uh, voiced and co-created by Jenny Slate. Um, and in the feature film, uh, uh, directed by uh, Dean Fleischer Camp, who also was the creator, uh, along with um, his, uh, his ex-wife, Jenny Slate, of this, of this series, it's just, you just kind of can't believe it works as a feature. You know, it works for people who didn't see the short films. It's just, you know, this uh, Marcel and his... Uh, grandmother, voiced by Isabella Ros- Rossellini, the last two of their community. Uh, they don't, uh, and and it's just it's it's a, it's an amazing, um, really tender and really funny and really heartbreaking uh, uh, sort of exercise. And I, I think it honestly making adults and kids alike sort of get a little smarter and wiser about things like grief and loss and just sort of like soldiering on during, it's kind of an allegorical pandemic we're in, really, I think. It's also an amazing uh, use of the mockumentary form, and you just can't believe that this, you know, frankly, a gimmick uh, can still be as much of a triumph as it is here, as it is in Abbott Elementary, as it is, you know, you name it. it, Somehow we are not exhausted with this idea yet. (laughs) I, I just think it... There's a there's a there's a sweetness to it that is not sticky and it doesn't the the emotional engineering doesn't feel like so many animated features do make me feel like just some focus group sucker you know <laughs> you know just kind of like yeah all right I laughed a little I cried a little you know my arm still feels bad from being twisted you know uh, but Marcel the show is just a whole different uh, experience I love it a easy top ten for me let's take a yeah. listen to a bit of the movie. Rolling. Give me some levels. Give give you some levels, like. Just like talk. Like bit. oh uh, hello. My name is Marcel. Oh, it's not the first time I've done that. My name is Marcel, and I'm partially a shell, as you can see on my body. But I also have shoes and um, a face. So. I like that about myself, and I like myself, and I have a lot of other great qualities as well. That's perfect. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> Charles and Mitchy, did did uh, either of you catch that as well? Did you catch that film this year? Yeah, I did, and I'm really, really glad that uh, I uh, when I saw it, it had made Michael's list. I was like, oh, I need to make sure I prioritize this, um, and I watched it last night. Uh, I have I, Isabella Rossellini is just mm. amazing. How she manages to sound like a goddess even when she is voicing an elder mollusk. <laughs> um, I expected this to be treacly and, you know, I, I think yeah. sticky was a, is a really, really good word. Um, but it was sincere in a way that I think a lot of films try to be, but end up coming off as contrived. Yeah. And... I feel like the length of the movie was just about what it needed to be because it was the gimmick was starting to get a little bit much by the time we got to the end and they, it ended I think at the right point. Hmm. But I there was a there, there's a quote in there that has been sticking with me where Marcel is going looking at all the comments on YouTube and is saying <laughs> that Oh, you know, there's so many people here, but it's it's not a community. It's just an audience. Uh, and I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> oh, that's uh, that. That's if so you're true. if you have anything that would encompass, I think, not just the pand the way that we've been interacting with each other since the pandemic, but really this whole phenomenon of s- social media and influencers and all of that is like, wow, that was n- nailed it right there. And again, it could have been a really like eh, eye-rolling scene but the way that it was framed and written and Jenny Slate really sells it um, at that point yeah I think there's a lot more going on in this film than you would initially think and it definitely deserves multiple rewatchings. I'm I, I, I rented it. I'm going to go back and buy it. Honestly, <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> well, something uh, again, completely in the opposite direction. Uh, Charles, you mentioned earlier decision to leave um, a Korean film. Um, this is also on my list, and I, um, of course, whenever you have uh, um, Park. Uh, Yeah, yes. Whenever you have him, you know that it's going to be a wild movie. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this and why it is on your list. Uh, Park Chan-wook is one of the uh, leading uh, talented directors from South Korea, as people know about. Seeing films like Parasite, uh, which won the Oscar, uh, uh, directed by another director, but... Uh, this film is uh, is kind of a calculated risk on his part because he had done films like Old Boy yeah. and um, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and where he does a lot of uh, sexuality, extreme violence, all within context, like none of it's gratuitous. But he said he wanted to expand his audience but without uh, changing his values. So he decided to uh, sublimate but not... Uh, uh, dilute some of his preoccupations as a filmmaker. So a decision to leave, he constructed, I think, something I had never really quite seen before, where uh, there's a murder, uh, there's a beautiful woman from China who may be the uh, the, the main suspect. Uh, the detective, who's more of a more reflective uh, agents of the police whereby he's he's a thinker and likes to have everything planned out. But there's something that's undermining his his marriage that has not been 
brought to the surface. They're sort of tolerating each other and negotiating uh, how they relate to each other. So this case serves to expose the Fishers uh, Mm -hmm. with his relationship with his wife. He becomes intrigued by this woman, not only because she's very attractive, but there's a certain uh, aspect of her being from China that gives a certain exoticism to the case. He doesn't quite know exactly how she fits in, but that's the mystery part. And he starts to fall, uh, uh, not wouldn't say in love with her, but he becomes fascinated with her. And one of the interesting scenes of seduction that's not consummated is when they're in the interrogation room and he orders uh, a very highly priced um, bento box of things to eat while he's interrogating her. And it's just like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers have a cigarette after they dance. <laughs> and I've never seen that before. And, and, and the use of uh, uh, space in terms of uh, uh, how the characters relate to each other, the, the nature of the case uh, it's it, the whole thing. But the more he finds out about her, the less he knows. There's things involving uh, touches between them that are intimate but not forced. Uh, yeah, he just basically uh, this mystery just becomes a, a template for examining what mm-hmm. attracts people to each other, which is uh, which is something that defies analysis mm-hmm. and decision to leave. Once again, the title resonates, like, leave what? What's your decision? Is it leaving right. your mm-hmm. wife, leaving your job? Where, where, you know, you're supposed to be ahead of all departures. So where where would you go once you decide to leave? Yeah. And, and, and his boss is frustrated, like, why haven't you solved this case? Because normally he's very um, uh, professional about closing cases with, yeah. um, you know, very professionally, and something's distracting him. And just the way Park Chung-wook just examines uh, this whole dilemma, it just yeah. becomes, and just like the other films that we talked about earlier, it just provokes so many questions, but you want to find the answers, even if they remain ultimately ambiguous. Yeah. So the whole thing was like a fascinating journey. And that's Decision to Leave. And we're going to take a very quick pause. We'll keep this conversation going in just a bit, including what movies we didn't love. That's just ahead on Reset. This is Reset. I'm Susie Annan for Sasha Ann Simons. All hour, we've been talking about the best movies we've seen all year. The blockbusters, the indie films. We've talked fantasy and reality. But here's the thing. Not every movie knocks it out of the park. In fact, some are just, well, they're best left on the cutting room floor. Our panel today is Michael Phillips, film critic with the Chicago Tribune, Mitchy Trota, editor with Prism Magazine, and Charles Coleman with Facets Multimedia. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. And we want to hear from you, you two listeners. What is the movie you loved or hated in 2022? Give us a call now at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, that number is 866-915-WBEZ. We've got Mark in Old Irving Park who has a question. Hi, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the uh, films released late in the year, like always, The Fablemans, Tower Banshees, Empire of Light. I tried to see Armageddon Time, but the distribution was so complicated, it disappeared quickly, it seemed to me. My question is, really, what will studios continue to make serious adult films? Can they afford to? Wow. That, yeah, that is, that is quite the question. Um, uh, who wants to tackle that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, we're all waiting for the answer on that. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned that, that the 
obvious trends that the studio's really just living quarter to quarter on whatever the $200 million gamble was. Or, or in their view, not a gamble, because if it's another Thor movie or another Black Panther or another Batman project, whatever, it's less of a gamble because it's, you know, the, the money is, you're going to get more people in the door the first week. But I, I, I'm, I'm truly concerned about, uh, I, it's, it's what's happening to the middle class in the country in every aspect of the middle class in this country. The m- middle class amount of filmmaking, a, a medium budget picture, they don't give a damn. <laughs> they yeah. do not, you know, even with the success of something like every, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which paid paid off several times over its modest production budget. It's very hard to find a major studio. What's left of that realm uh, believe in it? And I think the thing that frankly surprised me and a lot of other people, I, I suspect, is uh, people thought that an older vaccinated audience would be the first ones back in the theater from the pandemic, and they were the first ones not to come back. Yeah. It's really the kids, you know. However, you want to. You know, forty-five and under. Let's say, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> that that are like I'm getting out still, and uh, only films like Top Gun and a couple of others got a got an audience uh, quadrant. For, you know, got audiences from every quadrant. I mean, uh, kind of to that point. Uh, despite making a billion dollars in the box office, um, you know, something that has made the worst list for for both you, Michael and Mitchie, uh, Jurassic World Dominion. Um, and that is the sixth and hopefully final installment of the Jurassic Park series. Um, <laughs> you know, in some ways, that, that kind of illustrates your point. Why Why did this movie make your uh, most hated list? Well, I really want to hear what Mitchie says. <laughs> I, I do. And I'll, I'll jump in at the end, but I do. I really want to hear what... Yeah. Uh... I, I thought I was alone. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm I'm going to preface this with I have a soft spot for movies that are so terrible they're fun to watch. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> and um, I guess both good and bad Jurassic Park falls into that category for me. I mean, in as a critic and as somebody who studies story, it was just so overstuffed. It didn't know what it wanted to be, and it existed very very obviously to pull together the two halves of the Jurassic Park um, film franchise Um, and because it was that's what its purpose was it was just it was just a hot mess of chase scenes and frankly weirdly not enough dinosaurs (laughs) for me I had no idea why blue and beta the uh, the little velociraptor was even in it um, but frankly, would have preferred more of them and less of uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, I will, and you know, this is definitely a generational thing. I will always love the original trio. Yeah. Um, and to their credit, I think they really, they just really leaned into it. It looked like they were having fun with it. Um, Sam Neill is just as fantastic 30 years later as he was in the original. Fantastic hair. Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> I would love to, like, clearly living, uh, you know, owning his own vineyard in New Zealand is doing very well <laughs> for him. Um, I feel like it is Jurassic Park was is a really good example of how studios are opt when they, you know, when push comes to shove, they are going to fall back on the very pretty visually engaging but 
light on characterization and actual story. And Mm -hmm. that does make me also very concerned, particularly when we're talking about marginalized, uh, marginalized filmmakers who are expected to make something as big as Black Panther or, uh, you know, a big they have to make a big budget hit in order for them to be given any right, chances. Right. I just think, and it's, Spielberg is not the only guy on the planet who can and should oh, make these Lord, movies. No. You know, but, but, <laughs> but, but this is, to me, it's just an abdication of craft. It, it's, it's, a ter- it's a really poorly made action film, and that's what offends me. It's like mm-hmm. these are not, these are not uh, action sequences, chase sequences, dinosaurs involved or not, that, that anybody can point to and say that's how we should do it. It's just, it's just not. And, that, and uh, the fact that like, I suppose it's weirdly comforting that a, a movie this poorly made made a billion dollars in a pandemic. <laughs> Maybe movies are back, you know. Uh, but it, I, I find that disappointing, you know. <laughs> and I mean, if you go, go, see the woman, uh, go see The Woman King if you want to see yeah, in, yeah. an interesting new take. Uh, G- Gina Pryde-Bicewood's direction, really sharp. Uh, very interesting kind of, you know, that that's, that's at least feels like it's, it's people who cared about, okay, how are we going to actually shape this action sequence? So, I don't know. I just thought, you know, I... I uh, it could have been better. Pure nostalgia, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to your it, point. It, it, it could have been better, and I think that's what makes me mad about it, is yeah. that they it, they had a great cast. And clearly, particularly the original three, were they were all in yeah. for it. And I they agree. looked like they had fun, and I think that's why ultimately it's bad, but I will probably rewatch it because I will have fun with those sequences. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Michi. I, 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 I think... No, this is what the fast forward button is for. I can, fast forward, I can skip the sequences that are boring. <laughs> I like that it made your hated list, but you're going to watch it again. Um, getting away from action, uh, Michael, a film that... Um, that made your list, your your uh, hated list, uh, is Boz Lerman's Elvis. Um, let's take a quick listen. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things. But in the end, you got to listen to yourself. In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed. And Elvis the god was born. I'm going to show you what the real Elvis is like tonight. You're looking for trouble? came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. Michael, uh, this one got a lot of buzz with Austin Butler's performance, getting wide praise, um, but why didn't you like it so much? Well, I think to Mitchie's point about um, about Jurassic World Dominion, I mean, the, you don't blame the actors. You know, I, I think the acting is usually the last thing to go wrong with a movie. I think everything else has a chance to go wrong first. Wouldn't blame any of the performances, not even Tom Hanks's, you know, playing playing Colonel Tom Parker in the heaviest Dutch accent that he never actually used publicly. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, I, I, some directors I, I just have a congenital uh, uh, pushback on, and I've never seen a Baz Luhrmann film that made me think, give me more. <laughs> I, I, I always feel like, uh, you know, I had the same reaction to his version of The Great Gatsby. I just felt like... Very uh, campy. And the real talent in, in that particular artistic collaboration is Catherine Martin, his wife. She's a brilliant designer, and that's the only reason his movies... Uh, exist I, mm-hmm. for me for me now people loved Al I and mean, people really turned out for Elvis and that was older folk and younger folk 
So people were hungry for it, and I, I cannot, uh, I can't, um, you know, who's going to begrudge that? <laughs> <laughs> Charles, did you did you catch this one? I did not see Elvis because uh, I was actually kind of skeptical enough to not be too curious about uh, what the film had to offer. But as Michael has said, it did really well at the box office, so it definitely survived any bad reviews it received. Some some reason it caught the attention of people and flourished with yeah. uh, the Elvis mythology and uh, and people have praised the lead actor's role. So it looks like uh, Baz Luhrmann made a quite good, interesting calculation based on, uh, on how successful the film ultimately became to be. Yeah, he seems to have an audience. Uh, well, um, you know, turning back to uh, action and particularly superhero movies, uh, Mitchie, another movie that made your worst list was DC's Black Adam starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Why did this make your hated list? You know, I, with a few exceptions, the DC live action movies have just been, to me, have felt very stark and joyless and taking themselves too seriously. But I mean, Black Adam really takes the cake in that it managed to take a cast that is an overabundance of charisma Pierce Brosnan, The Rock, Aldous Hodge. Um, even the, everyone in the supporting cast, and turned out a spectacularly joyless superhero movie where the action sequences really did not manage to hold your attention. Uh, it was trying to say something about Western imperialism and opportunism, uh, but just sort of lost the thread about halfway there. They figured they'd thrown a couple of lines that are accurate and then just yep we're just gonna we're gonna turn it into another slugfest mm. that I felt nothing and I think that's what really makes me angry <laughs> about the film it's not even bad entertaining in the way that Moonfall and Jurassic Park were for me uh, it was just such a waste of so many things DC the DC movies have really been fantastic on casting decisions. So this is not the actors Hmm. at all. Um, For the most part, their casting decisions for these characters have been almost spot on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will just, Ben Affleck was not it for me. Uh, (laughs) But seeing all of these really great talents coming together and getting what we got is just how do you waste this much money? Yeah. Well, is what I want to know is how do you waste this mm-hmm. much money and get the chance to do it again? Mm-hmm. Well, we are very short on time, just 30 seconds left. So I just want to go around really quickly and have each of you uh, tell the listeners the one movie they should watch before the new year. And we'll start with you, Michael. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm going to break the rule right away. There's a great film, uh, San Omer, which made my uh, uh, best of 2022. 20, uh, All right. We're going to have to say that. Saint, <laughs> Saint, Omer. Saint Omer. All right. How about you, Charles? Uh, all the beauty and the bloodshed. All right. Ooh, and great. Mitchie? Uh, the Banshees of Inisharan. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you to our movie expert panel, Charles Coleman from Facets, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, and from Prism Magazine, Mitchie Trota. Thanks all, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank happy you. New it was New fun, Susie. Thank, well. Thank you. Thank you.